Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Streams of Winter. Livestream 13. Cersei Lannister. Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning in this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who is bound to make a big impact on the Winds of Winter one way or another. It's Cersei Lannister, everyone. Will Cersei continue to blunder her way through the next book as she did in Feast? Or will her walk of shame harden her for a renewed tilt at leadership? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hey, hi everyone. Uh, thank you for being here today. We are very excited as usual, as we just love these streams and talking about all these wonderful characters. Great to be digging into Cersei today. And to help us in that conversation, let me introduce our special guest today. It's Miguel Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast, among other things. Welcome. Hey, everyone. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, the shuffle and yeah. the rescheduling. Yep. Perfect. It worked out great. Here we are on a Sunday afternoon, ready to talk about Cersei. So a uh, quick reminder about spoilers in these streams. We talk about books, sample chapters, if they apply, and we occasionally make comparisons with the TV show. So it spoilers everything here. So uh, let's get started with Cersei Lannister. Over to you, Yoke Boy. Yes, Cersei Lannister, great topic. So I've cooked up a few questions and we're going to go through them and give you our answers to the best of our abilities. And I'm going to start with this. Early on in the story, in the first novel, Cersei tells Ned Stark, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. So how accurately does this quote describe Cersei's political game? Why don't you start, Lady Gwyn? I think extremely accurately. Uh, Cersei is a classic black and white thinker. So you win or you die. That's pretty much, those are the options. <laughs> There's no middle ground. Uh, that really highlights her psychological limitations, I think, and her inability to grasp nuance. And incidentally, black and white thinking, which is also called splitting, is a hallmark of narcissistic personality disorder. And we're not psychologists, and we don't want to go too deep into all that. But a quick read of the definition of NPD, which I looked at earlier today, I was impressed or amazed that it, many of the characteristics 
fit Cersei to a T, those exaggerated feelings of self-importance, craving of admiration from other people, struggling with empathy, actually daydreaming about power, which we see her do a lot of in Feast for Crows, and the list goes on and on. So far be it from us to diagnose someone from our armchairs here, uh, but just saying. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree. It's totally accurate. And I think the problem for Cersei is that she doesn't take the quote as she says it. So she says, you know, you win or you die. But I think she's hearing I win and you die. And like, I mean, I guess props to Cersei. It takes balls to think that way, but she doesn't really have the capacity, at least so far, to back up uh, the way she would like that that phrase to actually play out, which is why she's, uh, you know, walking naked in front of the whole city. Okay, excellent. And why don't we talk a little bit about motherhood, because this is something central to Cersei's story. So Catelyn Stark, as an adult and parent of House Stark, is often cited by readers as being the mother of the story. Yet Cersei is also a mother who swears to loving her children. So what contrast is evident between these two women that infers one is a good mother and one isn't? And what does this contrast tell us about House Lannister versus House Stark as a whole? Mikhail, would you like to take it away? Yeah, so I think it's important not to you know, judge the way women approach motherhood too strongly. Um, Cersei is a human being and she is allowed to have the feelings about motherhood that she she has. She's allowed to have that be a complicated relationship, um, even if that's more selfish, you know. Um, but I think the problem with Cersei is that she just has so little self-awareness um, which actually seems to intensify as the, as the books go on. I mean, like, I, you know, we were, you're reading the quote, like, you know, you die. And I'm like, oh, remember smart Cersei? That was fun. Um, but Cersei, you know, the, the problem is if she was kind of like, okay, my relationship to parenting is that I want my children to re- reflect and defer to me and just be all about me. And I'm not interested in them outside that dynamic, which is the case. Fair enough. You know, it's not like there's like a lack of people who are going to be available to raise the royal the royal children. And, you know, we have a sense that maybe that was the Elena Tyrell school of motherhood. And, you know, that's a valid option. The problem is that Cersei, you know, views herself as being an involved and effective parent. Like that's that's how we get Joffrey. Um, and she's neither of those things. And it's even worse because she can't identify the flaws in her children that she really should because you know, she she thinks that she's doing such a great job that they cannot have flaws that are reflective of her flaws in parenting. You know, she does criticize, like, Tommen a couple times, but she she doesn't, she makes that, like, a contrast. Like, I'm like this, and Joffrey is like this, and then Tommen is like this, and that's bad, and that doesn't come from me. And it, you know, maybe it comes from Jamie or, or whatever, but, like, the... She's, she's just not consistent in her, like, <laughs> a theme with Cersei, the reality is not consistent with her perception of it. So, yeah, I think that's really the problem with her parenting more than the specific approach she takes. But I do have to say in her defense that Tywin was her father, and that would fuck anyone up. So, as we see. 
Yes, <laughs> truth, truth, truth. I think that's uh, very well put. And in my opinion, the contrast between Cersei and Catelyn as mothers is absolutely meant to highlight the overall contrast between Stark and Lannister. It's not about good versus bad parenting necessarily, or even good versus bad houses. Uh, but it's about that the, the approach that they take, love versus fear. Tywin's entirely entire political philosophy, starting with dealing with his father's mistress, as we hear in A Feast for Crows, and uh, dealing with the rains and the tarbecks. These are things that happened when he was a very young man, up to his years, his hand and his stratagems in the War of the Five Kings can be boiled down mainly to fear and intimidation and big displays of power and might. On the other hand, you see Ned cultivating personal relationships with people, his bannermen, his servants, his children. So it's not hard to see why Sansa, in a scene that highlights this dichotomy uh, during the Battle of the Blackwater, thinks, if I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me. She's drawing a line between her and what Cersei's telling her about making people fear uh, her. So Cersei's parenting is really an extension of her family's political philosophy, which allows us to move the debate from parenting to whether fear or love is a more successful motivator of humans. I also tend to be wary of judging mothers, and I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and think, you know, they're maybe people are doing the best that they can with the tools that they've been given or the, just in the situation that they're in. I do believe that Cersei loves her children. But one, one that strategy of considering whether they're doing the best that they can with the cards they've been dealt, as Mikhail said, Cersei was raised by Tywin. He's a man who forced his teenage son to participate in the gang rape of a young woman just to teach him a lesson. So it's very likely that her perspective of what constitutes good parenting is a little bit skewed. And that's not something that we can entirely, you know, take her to task for. Although, obviously, people can overcome their circumstances in, in lots of situations. But, uh, yeah, I really have to go with that. We're, we have to think about her background and where she's coming from when, when we're passing those judgments. I really enjoy these perspectives and this kind of understanding you're encouraging of Cersei and her background. So now we've talked about motherhood, I wanted to do a bit of background work on Cersei as a kind of lover and her love life. Cersei and her twin brother and lover, Jamie Lannister, are painted as two halves of a whole in the early text. Their sexual relationship, which really risks the peace of the entire realm, leads to the murder attempt on Bran, of course, solidifying the pair as villains in the saga's setup. But as we read on, we realise that this inseparable pair are not quite as alike as we first imagined. So in what ways are these two different and what problems does that cause their relationship? Mikhail? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this because it gives me a chance to talk about Jamie. Um... <laughs> So Jamie, in my in my perception of him, is cursed with all of the self-awareness that Cersei lacks. And I think it's actually an excess of self-awareness. He's self-conscious. Um, and that's what leads him to make the, the fatal decision to just be like, yeah, I just killed the king for no reason. You know, and that will be the official story for 
years and years in King's Landing and, and Westeros and nobody's going to, you know, think anything other than, you know, the, he, he basically invites that level of judgment um, because he is so self-aware of his own actions. Um, and he basically, you know, lets, lets that affect him to the point that he can live in a state of unexamination with Cersei. So to that, you know, to that extent, they're, they're quite well matched because they're both kind of just like living in the moment. And, and, you know, Jamie is a very kind of hedonistic person when, when we first meet him which is also a Lannister trait, incidentally. But the thing is then Jamie gets his hand cut off and he is so intensely forced uh, to self-evaluate that he can change, which obviously contrasts with Cersei because she, she, at least at the point that they're last together, has not done any kind of self-examination. She hasn't experienced anything that would cause her to do that really. And so then they, they're, they, you know, they used to fit together and they, they literally can't because Jamie. Like his puzzle piece morphed, you know, it, it changed and Cersei's didn't and they can't really reconnect. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. I, one of the few analogies, uh, not one of the few, sorry. One of the analogies that I love to use about these two is that of mirror images. This comes up a lot in, um, in both Jamie's and Tyrion's thoughts, the that they're kind of mirror images of each other, reflections of each other. The illusion that they represent two parts of a whole, that they are these perfect reflections, is exactly what gets shattered in A Storm of Swords. When Jamie finds, rather improbably, in the person of Brienne of Tarth, a person who's able to mediate his relationship with his inner self. And the reflection of himself that he sees in her eyes really troubles him and allows him to look inside himself in a way that he hasn't done in years or maybe ever. I don't know. Uh, Cersei's lack of subtlety and self-awareness leads to her seeing everything in her life solely as it relates to her and her goals and her desires. Mm, back to that narcissistic thing, right? Uh, including Jamie, actually. So the two parts of the whole motif turns out to be a big con perpetrated by Cersei, who really just sees Jamie as an extension of herself, not as a discrete individual. It's not an accident that when he breaks that cycle and we gain her internal thoughts around the same time, we start to see her thinking about how she should have been the man or the warrior or been the one with the sword. His defection from serving that role in her psyche, it leads to a need for her to fill that role out for herself since she sees everything in terms of war and struggle. So yeah, that's Jamie and Cersei in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> so Jamie and Cersei in a nutshell, and we've been through mother motherhood. I next wanted to talk about more about her father because we've brushed upon the subject in feast. We receive Cersei's POV and this internal monologue she seems to look up to her father quite a bit, but he's now died. What does this aspiration tell us about Cersei's self-concept? And so far, has she been able to emulate Tywin as she'd aimed to do, Lady Gwyn? I mean, every single thing she does, when we get her point of view, she's thinking about her father and how she's carrying out his legacy or hilariously as time goes by and she gets kind of more enmeshed in her plotting. She's actually thinking how she's doing things better than he did. 
I find the evolution of her thoughts about her father to be kind of fascinating because she clearly venerates Tywin the politician. But we start to get these moments where she's thinking a tiny bit rebelliously that she can do better than him. And I wonder if this is some sort of deeply buried rage that she has that's directed at Tywin the father, which could kind which could grow more as her story progresses. I'm interested to see if that happens. As for whether she's been successful in emulating him so far, not even close. <laughs> yeah, I would say that Cersei is to Tywin as a hatchet is to a scal- scalpel. Technically, they can both cut things. Technically, they can both kill. But there's a specificity and a directness and effectiveness to a scalpel that is that a hatchet is just not capable of achieving. It's not in its makeup. Tywin was a garbage person and an abusive father and a war criminal and just bad. But he had enough intelligence to understand that the end goal should most of the time at least be something beyond wanton destruction. Whereas Cersei kind of confuses rubble with like victory and it's yeah i think i agree with you that there is a big difference in the end goal goal that you're talking about i feel tywin is overrated in most areas but at least he was able to achieve his goals despite them being despicable sometimes tywin was cruel but rightly or wrongly usually wrongly he had a lannister endgame in mind Cersei blunders her way through the story, which is given further focus when we gain this POV, and she is too often cruel for no great ends. So I think I'm aligned with Mikhail here. And to further the question, do we think that Cersei is going to continue trying to emulate Tywin in wins, or is she going to kind of give up on this ambition? And if she does continue to try to be like him, in the political sense at least, to what effect? Mikhail, have you got anything to say? Uh, I think she's going to try. She'll try. I guess you have to give Cersei credit. She always tries. Yes, redeeming features. We should write these down, how many we can find. (laughs) Okay, so Cersei's a trier. She will try for sure. Being a mini Tywin is a part of her self-concept. And you know what? Her character needs to develop. And it would be a refreshing change if she did in fact become more competent and genuinely Tywin-esque in this next book. Rather than this continued, almost comedic blundering ad infinitum. Yeah, uh, we talked about this in the Primer episode, the idea that she could take inspiration from Tywin's eradication of the Reigns and Tarbacks to solve her Tyrell problem, which is something we'll be getting back to later on. Yeah, I think she's definitely going to keep going down that road for better or for worse. Yeah, so hold that thought. We're going to revisit what Lady Gwyn is talking about here. So I really wanted to talk about some of the mistakes that Cersei made. One, because it's revealing her her true character. And two, because I find it quite funny. And I thought everyone would appreciate a laugh on a Sunday afternoon. So let's talk Cersei's mistakes. In Feast, we are privy to her thoughts and witness all sorts of wickedness and strange plans. At times, the poor leadership is comical, which helps 
helps us through the wealth of Cersei chapters. So can we each name our favourite Cersei mistake in the books and explain the greater effect of this action? Why don't you start, Mikkel? Yeah, so this isn't really specific, but I, I'm always awed by the fact that Cersei actually pretty much correctly identifies the Tyrell threat they are plotting against her. She doesn't even know to the extent that they have successfully already plotted against her. Um, but she's so inherently destructive and she acts with so little intelligence that she basically like impales herself on the same sword that she's using to take out the Tyrells. You know, you might almost say it's like burning down the Tower of the Hand because you don't like the wallpaper slash your delusion that your little brother is hiding in. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, it's literally everything about her small council uh, from the fact that in spite of her bluster about being Tywin reborn, she is completely interest disinterested in matters of state. Those small council meetings, her mind wanders a lot. And every time something important comes up, she changes the subject. She's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Or she's sitting there thinking about Rhaegar or, you know, what have you. Lots lots of different, completely unrelated things. Uh, then, then there's the fact that she gets rid of and and or alienates everyone with any merit, including people who would be on her side, like Jamie and Kevin, and fa- replaces them with dolts and lickspittles and spies. If if we're right about the Merryweathers and Orane Waters having secret agendas and working for other people, and even if not, she literally handed Orane Waters all those lovely new dramas for free. And uh, all he had to do to uh, to earn them was to uh, be present to fuel her weird fantasies about Rhaegar and make a few bad jokes about people she doesn't like. It was easy. A very easy job for him. As to, you know, what the effects of that are, I mean, obviously, <laughs> what she did with the small council early on in A Feast for Crows directly led kind of to what happened to her at the end of A Feast for Crows. So uh, she, like Mikhail said, she definitely impaled herself on her on her own sword. <laughs> so. I do actually love to think of Aurene Waters just like sailing out and being like, <laughs> I'm a pirate now. <laughs> like, it's like, that was easy. <laughs> I've my eyelashes a couple times and look at this, I have a fleet. <laughs> it was the purple eyes that did it. <laughs> Yeah, this whole Orain Waters situation is extremely amusing to me. I have wet myself laughing numerous times when I've read it. She's so easily seduced by flights of fancy. That guy looks like Rhaegar. Give him a new fleet of ships. What could go wrong? She also allows the faith militant to arm after all this time, and you only have to look at Westerosi history to know what a plague that could be to the government. Well, she is the government, so well done. She imagines herself being very cunning, but every, all the readers understand that this decision is going to bite her on the ass. And so she throws away power to these people who before long used the power back against her, bringing Cersei's leadership to its knees very quickly and also humiliating her in the process. However, that isn't even... These two are still not even my favourite mistake. My favourite, 
The one I found most amusing is Cersei's plot to have Tristane murdered. She ordered the hits and requested that the assailants shouted half man, half man, as they carried out the act in order to deflect <laughs> the blame onto her hated brother Tyrion. Which I have to say is hilarious to me, just the thought of these people shouting half man, half man. That's great. And you can imagine how smart Cersei thought she was for concocting this piece of genius. But lo and behold, Tristane remains unscathed and Doran now knows about the plot through his eyes and ears at court. The small council, which Lady Gwynne was talking about, which no doubt is going to bite her further on the ass in the winds of winter. So we still haven't seen the full blowback and fallout from that. Another day, another diplomatic disaster for Cersei, with two sand snakes heading towards the capital with Marcella. This one could cost Cersei severely. And another thing that we brushed on earlier, this leading into her mistake with the faith militant, will Cersei's walk of shame harden her in the upcoming book, resulting in fewer mistakes like these, and a Cersei that becomes more fearsome and perhaps less comical, because we've had her we've had our kind of laugh at Cersei, but perhaps now it's time for her to take the reins. What do you think, Mikhail? Yeah, I mean I think that would probably be a good writing idea, you know, tack to take, because it's not super fun to take down like like as a as a mid level boss, Cersei is not particularly intimidating right now, um, you know. And I, I do I do think you can envision the Walk of Shame as like a parallel transformative trauma to Jamie losing his hand. Um, there is a very strong sense of loss uh, at and and violation in the Walk. And I actually every time I read that, I like. I, I'm rooting for Cersei, and I I am just shocked how George manages to make me do that. But um, it will probably, if if that does happen, it'll probably send Cersei further down a like a more effective path of evil rather than like attempted atonement. And then also, her voice is so strongly established as this like erratic, kind of stupid, you know, political actor who's just constantly outplayed by everyone around her. That I I don't know. I, I don't know if George is gonna move, you know totally away from that. But I, I do think it's an option. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
So it would be one hell of a trick if George kind of reconceptualized Cersei in this book, but this is a guy that can pull tricks out the hat when he needs to. So let's see. I I think that th this could the walk of shame could be the path to ch change for Cersei. I don't think she'll become less cruel, but the walk seemed like a development segue to me, like Jamie Sanders, Mikhail said. If Cersei could keep her trademark cruelty, but learn to direct it, direct it with more incision and less stupidity, then it would denote welcome change, and she could become more fearsome. I think, perhaps being shadowed by an invincible Robert Strong will embolden her to take some action against her perceived foes. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? I do agree with both of you here. I definitely see the walk as a parallel with Jamie's maiming, and they both lost a defining characteristic there. It's actually made explicit in both of their thoughts afterwards. He's lost his sword hand. It's also the hand that, well, he used to pleasure his sister. It's the hand that he used to push Brandon Stark out a window. She has lost or shattered the illusion of herself as this kind of beautiful, gracious queen. She thinks, you know, they've seen, they've seen, what have I done? She really literally let them see beneath the veil. Uh, so I think that they're very similar in that regard. But I think with Cersei, she's going to be emboldened to become, as she sees it, more Tywin-esque and that she will choose utter isolation in that effort. Uh, whereas Jamie has taken a different path. But since I don't think Cersei understands Tywin very deeply, really, I agree with Mikhail that she's pretty stupid sometimes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do not see her changing her stripes. Uh, pardon the mixed metaphor. I know she's a lioness, not a tiger. But uh, <laughs> I think she'll think she's doing that. But I don't think that uh, she's really going to succeed because... You know, like Mikhail said, she's kind of entrenched as a character in in that very strong place that George has, you know, given her this voice. Or, you know, we're in her head and we really see who she is. So I don't think he can change what's inherent about her personality. She can change her approach. And I believe that'll probably be to become more, more vicious because she'll think that she's becoming more like her father somehow. Yeah, if I could actually just like say something I just thought of, um, I I do think it's important to recognize how much of Cersei's entrenchedness comes from and bears the marks of of sexual violence, because she like is a survivor of sexual assault, and her reaction to the Walk of Shame is extremely characteristic of you know like the obsessive washing and the the wearing extremely modest clothing and and all that um, obviously that's not a universal reaction, but that, that is one way that people can react. And I, I think it's interesting. Well, I, I think it's both important to note that as something that happens to this character who is a bad person. Um, and that still is a bad thing that happens because she's a fictional character and we can have empathy for a fictional character, but also just, just to understand the way that might not lend her to being a flexible person, you know, because that is, like she, she, it's a very ossifying thing to happen even more. So, well, okay. I shouldn't say that. I don't want to, I don't want to compare, but like 
Jamie was physically maimed. Cersei was psychologically maimed many times. And it's because we are talking about her psychology, I think, you know, it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about how she might possibly change or, or not. Yeah, of course. And and when we talk about Cersei as a comedic character, there's certainly nothing, you know, amusing about that walk when you read it. It's, it's quite horrifying, no matter who it's happening to, a hero or a villain. It's a horrifying thing to go through psychologically, as you say. So this walk of shame might kind of drive her in the winds of winter. But another thing that's been driving her for many years since she was young is this Valencar prophecy where Maggie the Frog told her as a child essentially that all of her children would die before a younger, more beautiful person took from her all that she held dear and a little brother would finally murder her. So what psychological effects does this have on Cersei's character up until the present point, Mikkel. Yeah, I mean, it's almost overwhelming. It's hard to trace a part of her actions that aren't connected to this prophecy, which is actually something I don't love from a craft perspective because, you know, you open A Feast for Crows and you see Cersei's point of view and it was it's very similar initially to seeing Jamie's point of view and you're like, oh, how is he going to make me like this person? And with Jamie, you know, George succeeds incredibly. And with Cersei... You know, not that there isn't other stuff there, because there is, but so much of her psychology just sort of comes back to like, she got a scary prophecy when she was a kid, you know, and then and then also maybe killed a girl. Oops. I, I, I don't love that, that explanation, but I don't think you can underrate how important it is to to the way Cersei reacts. I mean, it's just it, it's her mantra, right? George has most of these characters have little mantras in, in their heads and and hers is definitely the Valencar prophecy, and it's uh, it's extremely effective if um, a little bit maybe blunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, truly, truly, the this prophecy defined her feast for crows and a dance with dragons arc. Even though we only learn about it slowly in bits, bits and pieces, as George does, it doesn't take long for us to realize that her deep seated need to take Marjorie Tyrell down stems from this younger, more beautiful part of the prophecy, which she's interpreting as a younger, more beautiful queen. So obviously her childish jealousy and hatred of Tyrion, which came from, you know, the fact that, first of all, he was born and took their mother's, you know, their mother died and she doesn't have any the ability to empathize with, you know, this, his disability. So uh, that sort of all those negative emotions she had about him morphed into um, this mortal fear of him when she learned the meaning of the word Valencar following her murder of Malara Hatherspoon. It says she had asked uh, Herceptor what Valencar meant, and she was informed that it means little brother. And that's undoubtedly when her, her real hatred for Tyrion kind of solidified there. So she makes a lot of leaps in her interpretation of Maggie's words as she attempts to forestall this prophecy. Ostensibly, she kills Malara to eliminate the only witness to Maggie's words in hoping that that will somehow keep it from all becoming real. But she's also 
shoving her down a well because Malara revealed her crush on Jamie. It was fine for Cersei to fantasize about Rhaegar, but her friend couldn't have a parallel fantasy about her brother, Jamie, that should have revealed to Cersei that all that she holds dear is Jamie. But instead, she assumes that what she holds dear is this political position. So eventually, as adult Cersei, this is what leads to her interpretation of the younger, more beautiful person as a queen and her laser focus on Marjorie. And we can assume previously that focus was on Sansa, Joffrey's prior betrothed, though we never had the benefit of Cersei's point of view for that. So we can't say too much about it. We could just kind of maybe... Maybe guess that that might have been some some of the uh, impetus behind her being so horrible, the Sansa. You know what? I'd never, I'd never thought about that ever. And I wish I could tell you. Somebody commented on on our recent episode, and I can't even remember where. So I apologize to that person because I uh, definitely um, took that from a, a comment uh, that somebody made. So hat tip to whoever that was, because that was definitely a great, uh, a great perspective. Whoever you are out there. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us who you are. We'll give you a shout out on the next live stream. We get piles of comments. It's difficult to organize them. Okay. So that, that is how the Valonqar has so far affected Cersei. We've seen it in a POV before our eyes, it's not really hidden. It's really laid out for us that this is what's happened to Cersei. So going forward, how is the Valonqar going to affect her Cersei's thinking in the Winds of Winter? Any ideas, guys? Mikhail, you, you've put two words in the notebook. Yeah, not well. <laughs> yeah, I anticipate many more like, yeah, I'm more beautiful queen, like italicized, you know, <laughs> going through. Do, do we think that she's going to be thinking, well, if I if I kind of start taking leadership by the scruff of the neck, then I can forestall the prophecy by my own might, by my work and power that I've got. Maybe this will all disappear. Is that kind of what's going to drive us? I think Cersei is going to get increasingly desperate to forestall that prophecy, especially as she sees more of it coming true, right? That, you know, she's already got one child dead and is from her perspective, it was her brother, the the twisted little Valonqar who did it. So this, the paradox about prophecies though, right, is the more you try to avoid them, the more you play into them. Her huge blind spot about Jamie, though, is going to be a major factor in the denouement of her arc. He isn't only everything she holds dear, which I mentioned a couple minutes ago. In fact, that's all that she'll have left in that department, we assume, after the Golden Shrouds. Uh, but he's also her younger brother. By her own declaration, she tells Ned in Game of Thrones. She knows he's her younger brother, and yet she never once considers him as a possible Valonqar with regard to the prophecy. So she's got some pretty major uh, blind spots that are seem to be centered around Jamie, and they're going to come back. And uh, as we keep saying, this is one of the other things that's going to bite her in the ass. <laughs> I wonder if we'll start to see those blind spots start to kind of subside in the winds of winter as Jamie kind of 
road away for Brienne. Maybe she'll start thinking about this in a different light. So our patron, Christine, wonders if Cersei ever had a chance against this sort of prophecy. So the Valonqar certainly seemed like it's of the self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. The more Cersei tries to defy it, the more she helps it come true. So I definitely believe that it was Cersei's destiny all along from the the moment those words were spoken from Maggie. In a sense, this is a curse and it truly tortures Cersei. I think she triggered this fate when she aggressively accosted Maggie. And if she had never bothered the old woman, perhaps her fate would be rather different. It's an interesting thing to think about. So Cersei's best chance might have been to avoid triggering it in the first place. Not that she would have known what was about to happen as she entered that tent. So it's a tricky question, but the the prophecies are meant to be like that. They're meant to make you think about fate and impossible concepts like that. Yeah, I think... She would have had to be a completely different person, right, to avoid that interaction with Maggie, especially, you know, the way it played out, uh, which would have, well, by by definition, made her fate very different, of course. It definitely yell at the creepy old lady. That will help. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> so, but there's something interesting about her decision that we learn to, to go and seek out Maggie. Uh, in In her point of view, we find out that she would never have gone to see the old woman had uh, her aunt not revealed to her that her father would soon be announcing her betrothal to Rhaegar Targaryen. It says, her aunt had confided that truth to her before the tourney. You must be especially beautiful, Lady Jenna told her, fussing with her dress, for at the final feast it shall be announced that you and Prince Rhaegar are betrothed. Then it says... Cersei had been so happy that day, elsewise she would never have dared visit the tent of Maggie the Frog. So this was the tourney that was held in Lannisport to celebrate the birth of Viserys, where Rhaegar fell to Arthur Dane in the final tilt. This is exciting stuff, and God, I wish Cersei, as one of only two potential eyewitnesses to this tourney, could would give us more information about it and less about her fantasies. But that's probably wishful thinking. Although maybe you know, we still have time. Maybe she'll think about the actual tourney or maybe someday Jamie will. So, But to answer the question, maybe the only chance Cersei really had to avoid this prophecy was if her Aunt Jenna had just kept her big mouth shut. I like this blame game going on. <laughs> Notice no one's blamed Maggie the Frog yet. <laughs> she got disturbed from a nice afternoon nap, so... She's oh god, no. She's just doing her Cersei threw stuff in her, like some chemical concoction in her face. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna blame her. <laughs> uh, okay, so the subject of one of the subjects of this prophecy is the golden shrouds, meaning Cersei's children. Joffrey's already gone, choked to death on poison. So patron Quarren Halfhand wonders, will Marcella and Tommen die in the upcoming book if so how what do you think Mikel? yes i think george hates sweet and intelligent and kind children oh dear. <laughs> he's like i can't possibly corrupt these two therefore they must die um 
I don't really want to think about how, though I am a little bit morbidly curious if there's a more literal meaning to the golden shrouds thing. Um, obviously, we've, we've had echoes of that way earlier in the books, but like, it doesn't really seem to have been a thing with Joffrey, so maybe not, but it's just... I'm not looking for there. Are, there are some deaths of children that are upcoming, guys. That I'm not excited <laughs> to read. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Ugh, I don't look forward to this too much. But uh, yes, we're going to need therapy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like seriously, line, line up your therapist for after Winds of Winter comes out. They're, I think, you know, definitely they're both goners, destined for their golden shrouds, and. In my opinion, it's going to be Cersei's actions that seals their fates, you know, and there's there's a theory that uh, Tyene Sand's goal in infiltrating the faith will be to poison the oils that will be used to anoint Tommen when the faith finally give Tommen uh, their blessings as they agreed to when Cersei allowed them to reestablish the faith militant, which would in theory leave Marcella as the heir to the throne, which could shoot the Dornish plot. And... Hat tip to Cheryl, a.k.a. J17, who's in the chat today, uh, for this theory. I, I love this idea because it also represents getting the, the Dornish getting back at Cersei for her completely inept plan to kill Tristane. However, uh, if it doesn't work out like that, I can also see the Sand Snakes capitalizing on their probably fairly unrestricted access to Marcella to kill her out of vengeance when they come across Robert Strong in King's Landing and realize that they've been duped in the matter of Gregor Clegane's head. Uh, the show gave us poisoned Marcella and a devastated suicidal Tommen, and I'm not entirely sure the books will align that closely, but I, I really wouldn't be surprised if the Marcella storyline was pretty close in the end, while Tommen's death could kind of maybe be an unfortunate side effect of whatever Cersei's plot to get rid of Tyrell's uh, ends up being sort of, sort of similar to the show, if perhaps not exactly like in all the details. Tommen's, I think our Tommen in the books is far too young to just you know jump out a window. They, they, they show Tommen, it's important to know, was a teenager. So however it happens, I think they're both going to be dead. And uh, I don't think that Jamie is going to get that fatherly moment that he dreams about with either one of them either. So that's all. You could kind of see Tommen like, throwing himself in between Marjorie and whatever, like, horrible mm. thing Cersei has planned for her. Like, that could maybe be a thing. Yeah, I do think, you know, he, he has definitely shown himself to have a, uh, you know, he's, he's very loyal and he loves Marjorie. So, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to go for a, a beat overdose for Tommen. <laughs> <laughs> And moving on, Cersei will begin the Winds of Winter with a trial. This is something I've been looking forward to for, for years. It seems like many years now. It has. It has been many years. <laughs> I can get my calendar. <laughs> it's been many years. <laughs> it's not even exaggerating anymore, is it? There's evidence in the Mercy chapter that the trial has already been won by Cersei, but we still hope to witness proceedings... And so what do we think the trial will look like? The people involved, the occasion, what's that going to look like, Mikhail? So I'm, I'm really interested in this because I keep going back to the idea that, you know, 
you're kind of not supposed to revisit your greatest hits as a as an artist, um, at least not without some kind of twist to it. And we've already had a very massively memorable trial by combat, actually more than one, but one specifically in King's Landing, uh, to determine a Lannister's innocence featuring Gregory Clegane. And I don't know how George kind of mixes it up with that, other than like, oh, Gregor's dead-ish, I guess. I, I do think Cersei is almost certainly going to win, um, although it might be interesting if she if she technically loses and then just kind of overwhelms the faith or whatever with, with her power. But the fact that, you know, the, it, it is being set up to repeat so many of the patterns of the of Tyrion's trial, I don't, I don't know. I really, I wonder what George is going to do. Maybe something with wildfire, possibly wildfire. <laughs> I, I agree. It is, it is quite difficult to uh, guess exactly what, George would do especially if it's not wildfire and he's going to do something that we haven't seen on the show and therefore we're really blind about but perhaps the cha- in that in the eventuality it's a straightforward trial as you're talking about perhaps it's just simply to show the power of Sir Robert Strong Cersei is really overrun with close foes such as the Tyrells and the Faith I think we need to see a glimpse of something, a sign that a shift in power is possible going th- you know, into the next book and, and through. Cersei, as a character, needs hope. And that hope is what she can draw strength from through the Winds of Winter. Robert Strong introducing himself as a near-invincible Kingsguard would certainly give Cersei a boost and perhaps a new confidence to be more ruthless and focused in her own right. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I think the trial being about showing off what her champion is capable of is accurate. I mean, how else is she going to regain a position of power? Kevin Lannister, as a former regent, was unequivocal that Cersei was finished and that his intent was to inter her at Casterly Rock for the rest of her life. I would have really liked to see him try that, but sadly, we will not get to. Uh, Then we have the Mercy chapter indicating that Cersei's the person that Harris Swift is answering to regarding his mission to the Iron Bank. So the only way I can think of to resolve uh, these details is that Robert Strong's victory is so complete and so utterly terrifying that no one can refuse her afterwards. Maybe he just kills everyone there. (laughs) He just doesn't stop. <laughs> I mean, if it, right? <laughs> and Cersei goes, the Gregor, stop. <laughs> Wait, Robert and, Robert and Gregor are the same person. Right. <laughs> Where'd you get that from? Oh my God, who could have seen this coming? There's a mystery no one's figured out. <laughs> so if Cersei does win her trial, she faces a struggle for power in King's Landing then. Can you explain why the Tyrells have become such a thorn in her side, Lady Gwyn? <laughs> Thorns. <laughs> See what you did there. Uh, she thinks a lot in Beast and Dance about uprooting roses. She's getting rid of all these roses. And by the end of Dance, we see that she has completely and utterly failed. Uh, so 
Even if we're correct that she resumes the regency by using her champion to intimidate the council into reinstating her into that role, she's still going to face an uphill battle there since it's highly likely that the Tyrells will use every opportunity fate has presented them from a, a dead Grand Maester and um, maybe a, a poorly performing uh, Master of Coin, etc., uh, etc. Et I think... Uh, oh gosh, you know, they have to fill slots uh, vacated recently by uh, by the Kettleblacks. They are going to be packing the council and every other royal office in King's Landing absolutely full of roses. Yeah, I keep thinking about that line from Mulan where the enemy is popping out of the snow like daisies! <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys pointed out in your wonderful um, wins primer for Cersei that she's going to be drowning in Tyrells if she wins her trial small councils full of flowers their men are all over the city things are going to be extremely intense and partly this is a problem because they are actually trying to at the very least neutralize her and control the throne through Tommen and Marjorie uh, obviously they probably have darker plans for her not that I can blame them and but all things being equal it's 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 fair for Cersei to be like my enemy I will take them out but the problem is that you know like she has shown many times in the past she's such a power hungry destructo bot that she she can't use a situation to her advantage she she has no finesse whatsoever um so i think i think it will be not pretty whatever happens no agreed <laughs> no one's gonna come up roses let's just no nothing's <laughs> coming up roses except yeah certainly not her <laughs> Okay, I want to talk about something that was really a major event in the TV show. I'm sure you can all guess. When we're talking about how she's going to overcome the Tyrells, there's actually many textual links to her and Wildfire in the text. We we went through it in our primer with the, her eyes are often descri described as Wildfire and there's the burning of the hand and other other bits and pieces. So... Will Cersei blow up all her enemies as in the TV show? What do you think, Mikhail? I think it's extremely likely. I I think, yeah, I think the odds are very good that this will echo the last time that Game of Thrones was good. <laughs> all six seasons of Game of Thrones, weren't they great? <laughs> but um, I do also feel like I, I have an unsupported theory um, that Marjorie will either lose her trial or be killed in some other way, which will lead Mace to unleash the Tyrells in the streets, um, which will would also open up the opportunity for Cersei to fight back, obviously, and cause that kind of carnage. Just because I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of Marjorie as Anne Boleyn, um, because their, their uh, downfalls are very similar in terms of being accused of uh, infidelity and treason and including incest and a, and a false and a, and a false confession by a bard elicited by torture. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember why I was saying that to be completely honest with you, but it was a thought that I wanted to include in here somewhere. But but more realistically, I think probably Dave and Dan didn't get wildfire from nowhere, and um, I would like to see how George writes that because it really is a pretty spectacular scene in in the book, in the show, and I don't expect it to be exactly the same, but I would like to see his take on wildfire on solid ground. Yeah, it would be very 
kind of entertaining just to see Cersei kaboom all her enemies. And, that, you know, things you can't get from the show, how, how it was described and, you know, what Cersei was going... Can you imagine what's going for her head when this plan comes together and we get her internal monologue? That's just something the show can't do. As for whether I think that this will happen, when I think about what TV show parts will become book canon, I can't turn away from the major plot points that worked really well and held true to the various themes and characters of the text. I just don't believe such an integral scene where Cersei blew up the sets of Baylor and all of her foes inside it could just be dreamed up by the showrunners. The scene was too confident, worked too well and fit the A Song of Ice and Fire bill too perfectly for this to have been an invented afterthought, in my opinion. In The Winds of Winter, we will see something very similar, I think, and the plethora of wildfire references in the text will all make sense as layered foreshadowing. And patron Multude says that Cersei was one of the characters the show did well until the end. And yes, I do agree with that. She was a great character, great actor. And the presumed the Winds of Winter content helped a lot. So, Lady Gwyn, do you agree? The Winds of Winter will be explosive. What do you think? Oh, yes, I agree. (laughs) Wildfire it is. The only mystery to me is that it seems like Mace is charging off to Storm's End again in the Ariane 2 sample chapter. So for me, it's just about the kind of the timing and the logistics that puzzle me a tiny bit. So just trying to work that stuff out. But he ran back and forth in a feast for crows. So why not Winds of Winter? Especially if he suffers a nasty defeat at the hands of John Connington and the possible defection of some of his own bannermen to Aegon's side. So that could that could send him scurrying back to King's Landing in order just in time to get kaboomed. <laughs> Trust you to pick a hole in in the idea and then fill the hole straight away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so whatever path Cersei takes in the next book, she is sure to be a lonely soul with the Valonqar hanging constantly over her head as it's been doing for years and her political associates in opposition to her. Do we think Cersei will fear or relish loneliness in the Winds of Winter, Mikhail? So, you know, like I was talking about earlier, I think some of this depends on how much the Walk of Shame acts as a parallel transformation to Jamie's losing his hand, um, kind of maturing Cersei into a, a stronger political actor. There's also Ariane parallels there because she's also suffered for extremely foolish politics and, and is now, you know, trying to approach her responsibilities with a more sober point of view in the winds of winter. But even if Cersei does become a more stable actor, maybe even is able to, you know, assert control in King's Landing, I still think she can't avoid that very pesky Lannister trait of being extremely bad at loneliness. Existential loneliness is part of why Tyrion and Cersei are both addicted to sex. We have evidence that Tywin had a similar addiction, though he hid it very well. Jamie seems to have kicked his addiction to Cersei, at least for the time being. But the fact that Brienne, I mean, shows up in objectively suspicious circumstances and 
she's just like, hey, want to come into this trap? And he's like, yes, hard eyes. <laughs> um, I'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it, it suggests that he may have transferred that need for companionship onto Brienne, which I'm not complaining about because I ship them to the moon and back. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a relevant data point. I was talking about this because I don't think Cersei is going to be able to handle isolation very well. I think she will fill that void somehow, either maybe with Tina Merriweather or or somebody, probably not in a very smart way. Um, even if she succeeds in taking out the Tyrells, I think that that particular trait, her inability to be alone and to function as a, as a solo person, would be one to watch as a potential source of her eventual downfall. Or Alice Dragons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I said in I've said in the past, I think I said it earlier here, that I think she's going to choose isolation in the winds of winter rather than experiencing it accidentally as a result of, you know, something, her flailing around in A Feast for Crows. But you make the marvelous point that she won't be able to cope with it. So she could choose it, but in the end, uh, she might think she can handle it just like she thinks she can handle just about everything. We're just going to have to find something to fill all the holes left in her life by the loss of her entire family. And is that something shaped like a squid or something else? I don't know. Oh, God, please, no, please, please. And I don't think you're talking about Theon. No, I'm not talking about Theon. I'm not, definitely not. I'm talking about something that I'm, I'm still debating the mechanics of this, but it's definitely a possibility that we're going to address when we cover squids. Squids coming soon. Okay, so now on to our final question of the afternoon, and I think it's a good one. Aegon Targaryen, whether he's real or fake, is gaining a strong grip on Westeros and will continue to organise and make new allies in the next book. Do we think Aegon will be a real threat to Cersei? And does he have what it takes to storm King's Landing and make the Iron Throne his own, possibly chasing Cersei away to her first home of Casterly Rock? Mikhail? Um, yeah, every time Aegon is mentioned, I kind of go like, I'm going to let the smart people <laughs> think about this. You guys let me know what's going to happen because I really can't speculate but I would like to see Casterly Rock, especially those sewers that Tyrion worked so well at fixing. If I don't see those Casterly Rock lavatories by the end of this saga, I'm going to burn the books. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 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 Throw it across the room. (laughs) Sansa's queen, all my dreams have come true. Jamie and and Brienne are married, and I'm just like, (laughs) no toilets! (laughs) Tyrion Lannister. He keeps the toilets flushing on time. Okay, anyway, I think George has said we'll see Casterly Rock. It's in a SSM interview somewhere. But we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that it will necessarily be through Cersei's eyes. After all, the TV show did show us Casterly Rock, if I remember correctly. And it was with the Danny Alliance. Personally, I've gone back and forth many times over whether Cersei or Aegon will be holding King's Landing towards the end of the saga. But currently, I'm thinking Cersei will hold her position beyond Aegon's threat. I think Aegon will meet Daenerys in the field 
and suffer a great loss in what is likely a, tr a true Targaryen versus fake Targaryen battle. If this does happen outside of King's Landing, Cersei would benefit greatly given two enemies would be destroy destroying each other. Well, I always go back and forth over whether we'll see Cersei as a queen in the West a la Reyna Targaryen or whether she simply stays put while her enemies destroy themselves around her as you described. I definitely think we'll see fighting on multiple fronts and Danny and Aegon are going to face off in a second Dance of the Dragons. So will Cersei go west and then come back after they burn themselves out? Just like happened in Dance of the Dragons, there were real no there were no real winners, so you know that sort of thing could happen again. Remember that all of our other characters tend to move around quite a bit. And Cersei is, in fact, the only point of view character who hasn't left her location since the Game of Thrones. So I don't know if that means anything. Does that mean she's not going to she's going to continue not leaving it? Or does that just mean it's it's high time she went somewhere else? Uh, could it really I think it could go either way. So I don't know, maybe we'll get kind of all of the above in the end. And uh, I should also mention that the next installment of our primer series will be dealing with the Aegon and Dornish storylines, so uh, much more to come on that aspect of things for y'all soon. I can't wait to listen and learn all the stuff that I don't know about, <laughs> like the Rosby Ward. <laughs> I have to share this for a second. I was literally like, I, I've been in this fandom for a very long time, guys, and I've just been like, there's just, there's just, I mean, even if I'm not an expert in things, there's just nothing I don't know. And then Lady Gwen and, and, and Yoke Boy just start talking about the Rosby Ward. And I'm like, like this important figure. I'm like, who the hell is that? He's only mentioned like three or four this times. This is new. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is actually new material for me, which is extremely rare. I thought the Rosby Ward was the central mystery of the series. <laughs> oh my God. That's why I'm going to throw the book. It's, it's going to be like, dun, dun, dun. The Rosby Ward is... Whoever you He's guys like, this smartly is said he is. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, damn it. <laughs> Dang. Well, that's the genius of George R.R. R. Martin, isn't it? it just to, uh, you know, he's so layered and so enormously complex that uh, you can read the books for years on end and still find little mysteries and details that are. Yeah, always great depth. That's why all of us keep coming back for more, I think, because of this depth. You can just always learn new things. It never really gets too tiresome. So, Mikhail, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. You've been such a wonderful guest. Why don't you tell us, first of all, about the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast and then I know that you, you do a lot of podcasting. Why don't you tell us some of the other, other <laughs> podcasts you're involved in? Yeah, so I, uh, well, so the Vassals of King's Grave is a sort of podcast collective. Um, we started out talking about the podcast of Ice and Fire, and then we expanded into A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And now we basically talk about anything that that comes to mind. We have an ongoing Harry Potter reread. We have an, uh, we have a, a fairly recently concluded linear Song of Ice and Fire reread. 
We have, we're doing The Witcher now. We're doing just like a million different things. Um, so if you're interested in that, just, you know, pop by podcastadviceandfire.com and go down to the forums and see if you're interested in joining. I, as for me personally, I do a Witcher podcast called The Podcast of Surprise with Aziz from History of Westeros, who you guys probably know, and um, Kyle, who is a fandom media. So that's awesome. We're, we're almost done with the first book. We're, we're doing it story by story. So that will be an exciting development to move on to uh, slightly further along in the saga. I have the Nice Jewish Fangirls podcast, which is my kind of personal podcast. Um, you can find that online. It's pretty self-explanatory. We're Jewish fangirls who talk about Jewish fangirl stuff. Um, and then I also do the Level 7 Access podcast, which is about um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe primarily and um, Disney and, and the corporations that are going to take over our entire entertainment lives um, in the near future. So, yes, and you can also find my writing sometimes at hypable.com, although that's been a little complicated with COVID and all that. There is something for everyone there, so especially in our in our nerdish community. So, fantastic. Thank you again so much for being here. We're really, really happy that you could join us. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And as for what's going on with us, well, we'll be back uh, with another live stream in two weeks or two weeks minus one day. So it'll be Saturday, September 19th, 5 p.m. More King's Landing and beyond. Actually, we'll be discussing the Tyrells with Christina, a.k.a. Lady Triple from Blood of the Podcast. So uh, back in our usual Saturday time slot for that. Don't forget to check it out. Uh, we're also working on uh, part three of our Dance of the Dragons uh project with uh history westeros and of course we'll be back with uh, another installment of the winds of winter primer as well before too long so uh keep keep checking us out we appreciate y'all being here appreciate everyone in the chat that shows up to to chat and talk while we talk uh and hello as well to everyone in the future who is watching this the pre-recorded version of this or listening in podcast form thank you yeah, thanks to all of you and to each and every one of our patrons who keep us afloat and support us financially. If you would like to be a patron, you we'd appreciate it. It's it, there's a, various incentives. Go go to patreon.com and look up Radio Westeros. Early access to our regular episodes, shout outs, that sort of thing we offer as part of a tiered reward system. So check it out. So thank you and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bowing out. Cheers, guys. Bye for now.